0: Welcome to the Property CEO Podcast, your inside track to the world of property with your hosts, Ian Child and Richie Clapson.
1: Hello and welcome to the Property CEO podcast. My name's Ian Child and I'm here with Richie Clapson. Hello everyone. And in this episode, Rich is going to be giving us the inside track on commercial conversions, aren't you, Richie?
0: That's right. I mean, commercial conversions, they've become a very popular property strategy in recent years and uh, you know, I've done quite a few of them, so I thought I'd give everyone a quick overview on what they are and why you should consider them as an option for development. That's great. Can't wait to hear what you have to say on the subject. So uh, what have we been up to this week? I've been uh, radically rethinking my healthy eating strategy. That's what I've been up to. Have you? Yeah, yeah. I mean, uh, you see, you know, uh, um, the problem is that this diet that we're on means I can't eat any carbohydrates. Right. So, whereas my previous diet consisted almost exclusively of (laughs) carbohydrates. (laughs) So... So I'm thinking I might be doing something they call yo-yo dieting, simply going from one extreme to the other. and That's not ah, good. Okay. So uh what are you uh, what are you going to do about it? Well, I've discovered a middle, middle ground and I think uh, I think it could be uh, certainly a secret weapon or certainly my secret weapon, Ooh, that's for sure. Really? So what is it? Biscuits. <laughs> <laughs> that's right. Biscuits. So
1: these will be uh, biscuits that that lie exactly halfway between carbohydrates and, and non-carbohydrates. No, they, they?
0: The, you know, I know, I know you are thinking this, but they are special biscuits.
1: Okay, so I am guessing now that you are referring to the, uh, well, frankly, rather impressive array of Yay. snacks that you now have lining almost an entire wall of uh, of your office.
0: I am, and I have to say, the flavours are great. Uh, you know, I can uh, I can do you death by chocolate, choco. Blaster, I think, is one of them. Uh, peanut butter brownie. OK. Cheeky chocolate. That's really good. So what do you fancy? You brought
1: them with you to the recording studio? Uh,
0: might have done. Only a, only a small selection. So um, I thought you might be a bit peckish okay. during the interview. Which one do you want?
1: I, th- I think that's spotted a potential flaw, given <laughs> that you're the one being interviewed. So are you, are you expecting me to ask some I don't know, really long questions so that you can finish snacking? Well, you,
0: you can bang on a bit, to be fair, so I might even <laughs> squeeze in a quick nap. Thanks.
1: But I'll, I'll let you into a secret. I actually tried one of your new biscuits when they arrived. And do you know What? What? They taste absolutely disgusting. No, oh, they don't. They taste like chocolate. <laughs> no, they don't. No, no, no. They taste like ceiling towels dipped in chocolate. I mean, let's be <laughs> frank. If you were if you were to trace back their DNA, I reckon you'll find you've got more in common with cardboard than biscuits. And just because something has chocolate in it doesn't automatically make it nice to eat
0: well that's only your opinion and anyway <laughs> i really like them i mean the, you know the great thing is they're only i think it's uh, about 50 calories uh biscuit but uh, you know they're you know, about five times the size of a hobnob they're massive and um h- how many of these things are you getting through a day no i've done well i've cut down to about 20 at the moment 20 a day really yeah i know they're a bit addictive i i uh, i find them quite difficult to put down and that'll be the uh, the magic
1: ingredient that makes them a chocolate. Well then, what's that? Asbestos. <laughs> Asbestos. <laughs> you know, I reckon we should do a, a taste test. I reckon that you'd not only eat anything with chocolate in it, you'd even eat it if it was made of sawdust, providing
0: it had a chocolatey name. Do you think they could be a bit dangerous, then, my well, uh, biscuits? They don't call it death by chocolate for nothing, do they? <laughs> okay, so what about your Mr. Carb-Free? How's your healthy uh, uh, dieting and uh, eating going on, then? Well, if I'm honest,
1: it's uh, it has had its ups and downs. Although I've <laughs> I've not yet resorted to eating chocolate flavored ceiling tiles. <laughs> um, thing I struggle with is is snacking. So you know, if I'm out and about, I get hungry, and it's really difficult to find anything that isn't either full of fruit or loaded with carbs. Um, I think about the only thing uh, that I've found in in the supermarkets that kind of works. They do this. Um, there's one supermarket that does a tub. Of three hard boiled eggs mixed with spinach
0: leaves. Mm, that sounds really nice. So, when you say mix, what do you mean? Uh, is it in some kind of mayonnaise sauce or something? Uh, no, 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 no. The recipe is, is a tad simpler
1: than that. Um, you, you might actually want to write this down. Uh, what You're they not. do <laughs> is they boil some eggs, then they take the shells off the eggs, they lob them into a pot. And what put the shells? Some, no, 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 the eggs. Pay attention. And then they put some spinach leaves on top. It's the sort of cooking that, you know, I reckon I could actually okay, do.
0: Okay, I think I prefer
1: the ceiling tiles. I know, it's not great. I had one day, um, it's the only thing they, they sell that fits the diet. And, and one day, I was out and about, bit snacky, I had four pots in one day. Ooh. And I actually, no word of a lie, I actually dialed in to my last meeting because I, I, I just
0: couldn't risk anything bad. It can't happening. be good for you. Well, mind you, not I've I lost a lot of weight. Yeah, but I thought you were going to say you were going to lose a lot of friends. I think I'm I'm taking a bit of a risk being shut in this recording cubicle with you. If I'm being honest, Matt said I can smash the glass and and get oxygen and get out quickly if okay. I need.
1: Okay, let's not go there. If if anything untoward happens, I've asked Matt to edit it out. Um, he might even be able to edit out the sound of uh, chocolate-flavored ceiling tiles being munched in the background. If I'm not like, eating them. Uh, amazing what they can do with the uh, with the technology, but. I'll tell you what. What? Let's talk about commercial conversions, Oh, if we
0: must. Karen, let's talk about my ceiling tile biscuits a bit longer.
1: Well, are you sure that you don't want a quick cheeky chocolate before we start?
0: No, go on. I'm good.
1: Fantastic. Well, uh, commercial conversions. There's been an awful lot of things written about commercial conversions. And, of course, it's a great strategy for people looking to get into development. For some of the numbers can look very, very interesting indeed. Now, Richard, you've spent the last 35 years doing them. So... Perhaps we should start by outlining exactly uh, what they are. Absolutely,
0: sure. Um, I've done other things in the 35 years. I've done, just done commercial conversions. Okay, <laughs> a slight exaggeration on my part. I do apologise. <laughs> but I think the important thing is, um, you know, commercial conversions, uh, as, as people talk about them now, it's just a fashionable term. They're nothing new. We have been doing them for years and years and years. They're, they're called commercial conversions now, and which is a great title. But, um, yeah, I've been doing it for years. So I think what we do today... Let's cover what they are, so because a lot of people won't know what a commercial conversion is. What criteria have to be met? Let's have a little look at timescale, maybe some design implications, and maybe let's touch on risk. It's always important to uh, to pick up risk. Fantastic. Okay, so um, what was the first one of those? That was what are yeah what are commercial conversions? Okay, well generally when you hear. People talk about commercial conversions. They're thinking of converting offices into residential. Right. And that's, that's generally what people discuss. But important thing is it could be anything. And I've always stressed that to people. It's, it, it's actually a commercial building. You're going to turn into something else. Quite often residential, but it doesn't have to be that. Now, I can remember, and I think it was probably... See, I can't remember that well, can I? But I think it was about but two years ago. That's quite a long time. Yeah, and was, as,
1: as you, you know, your faculties... Uh, at my
0: here. age, that's good. Yeah. Especially after eating polystyrene ceiling tiles for the last few weeks. Now, I think it was Home Building and Renovating magazine. Mm-hmm. It's one of the magazines you just buy off the shelves. They had an article in there, uh, which I think was titled Commercial Conversions. And they had four or five examples. Uh from remember, I think there was a windmill they'd converted to... Resi- they're all conversions to residential, because that's what the magazine's about. Uh, they'd converted a windmill, an ambulance station, Uh, a Bible, I think it was a Bible factory or store or something, Uh, a power station to residential. I've actually done a power station once. And the best one was a public toilet to a residential. Wow, there's probably a few gags there, aren't there? There's uh, probably a few. But But I really just want to demonstrate that a commercial conversion can be converting a commercial building to something else. But let's, for the purposes of what most people would be thinking about, let's just focus on office to residential. So office to residential conversions. Okay. And first of all, understand the the planning classification because every building, every building use has got a, a classification for planning and it's only allowed to be used for the designated use unless you get permission to change it. So uh, planning uh, classification of offices is a B1, B1 business, they mm-hmm. call that. And the planning classification of residential is called C3 and it's called dwelling houses, uh, rather poshly titled, but actually just means residential. So it's C3 dwelling houses. Okay. Now, If you want to convert something from one use, so b B1 business, to another use, maybe C3 dwelling houses, you generally need permission. But the advantage we've got in commercial conversion, this is why, uh, you know, whilst I've been doing it for years, in the last three or four years, it's really got quite exciting, is that actually now you have permission without having to go through a whole planning process to convert from B1 to C3. So you're able to take an office building and convert it without full planning permission, which is absolutely terrific. It's a really, really great advantage that, that's come out there into the marketplace, and that's what's known as permitted development rights. Now, they were they were granted by the uh, the government to allow change of use from B one to C three uh, without any uh, you know formal permissions that you've got to go through and huge hurdles to jump through. And what the government were trying to do was uh, was help the housing shortage. There's a massive housing shortage. And probably uh, back in sort of 2012, 13, there was a massive oversupply of office space in the country that was just, just sat there empty. What the government said was, Well, rather than local authorities protecting that space, we're going to dictate that the local authorities have to give some of that space up and let, you know, uh, entrepreneurial developers come in and convert it into where appropriate residential properties to to ease the housing shortage. And what we'll do is we'll give them a, a permitted development right to really short circuit the process. So that's why it's really been talked about over, over recent years. It actually came in, I think it was March 2013 or something like that, I can't remember, but it came in a number of years ago, so people have really got on board with it.
1: Now, the, um, we talked about the benefit of going down the, uh, of, of having these, um, these permitted development rights, uh, but that doesn't mean that it's a completely blank canvas, you can do what you want. There are still some rules that you need to follow, aren't there?
0: absolutely you you have to go through a process what's known as prior approval uh, so you actually got to you've actually got to send a notice in it's a prior approval notice with your local authority to get the permission and and there are certain criteria that's got to be met so the building uh, if it's an office has to be in use as an office prior to i think it was march 2013 i think it was the 29th of march 2013 if it wasn't in use as an office then then that doesn't comply Okay. Uh, you're only allowed to do a change of view. So there's no external alterations. I'll come back to that in, in a minute. The building mustn't be listed. So you hear of grade two, grade one listed buildings. It can't be a listed building. Uh, it mustn't be in an area of what's called SSSI. Uh, do you know what that stands for? Uh sp- the site of special scientific interest. Top marks, 10 out of 10 for you. So is it a, is, it's is a site a of special scientific interest. It cannot be in one of those designated areas. And then there are some other criteria you've got to comply with. So you've got to pass transport and highways impact. So the transport authority and highways authorities could say no, no, because this building's going to have a massive impact. So that could revolve around having to provide parking or justify why you're not having to provide parking and why, you know, putting a load of people in this area is not going to cause a problem. Flood risk, a really important one. You can't be in certain flood risk areas. If you do, then you've got to raise parts of the ground floor up and get out of the way. And an an interesting one, and this one's come in fairly recently as part of the uh, tightening up on some of this criteria, is a noise assessment. But this noise assessment, a little bit different from a lot of others. It's not the noise that you would generate as your development. It's the noise generated from adjacent occupiers which will have an effect on your scheme. Right. Now, what does that mean? Let's just think about it. If you take an office building... And you convert that office building to residential. And that office building could be slap bang in the middle of an industrial state. And of course, that could have lorries coming in 24-7, unloading, and so on. The minute you get residential people in there, they don't want lorries reversing around at night. The planning authority and our local authority um, and environmental health have got some real problems on their hand that they got both people have got the rights to be there, operate deliveries at night, and you have the right as a resident to have peaceful sleep with your windows open. So the local authority have got a real quandary to how to deal with that. So this is why they brought in this clause to say, actually, you've got to make sure and justify... The adjacent occupiers won't have an effect on your building. Now, if you've got an office building in a, in a town centre on the outskirts of the town, it's probably not so much of a problem. But on the edge of an industrial estate, it could be one to think of. So that's, that's really important. There is another little quirk. There is thing called Article 4 direction where some permitted development rights are actually being restricted by the local authority. They're able to do that in certain areas, certain towns. They do that. I can tell you, uh, Winchester, one of the local towns around here, has got a lot of Article Four directions. There's a lot of offices you can't convert. Now, your planning consultant can advise you on all this. Go to a planning consultant; they can they can certainly tell you what you need to meet in terms of criteria, and they can then tell you whether you know your building is likely to come out of some of those criteria. You can do your own flood risk assessments, but your planning consultant could do that. You know, they could talk about all those other issues. There's some other little ones that creep in. Contamination risk must be considered. Not normally a real consideration in offices, but it can be if you're converting industrial. Buildings, but that's a whole nother subject. And and the other thing then to come back to is we talked about no external alterations are allowed. So if you've got an office block but you actually need to alter the windows on the outside to suit the new residential scheme, that's a separate planning application that you'll have to go in for. And of course, you're going to have to meet certain criteria, but it's only a planning application for the visual change of the building, not for the change of use to residential. You've got that automatically through this prior notification process. So the the really interesting thing is, you know, you've got this approval process you can do. You've just got certain criteria which the council can judge you on. And provided you meet those criteria, you could decide that before you put an offer in for a building, you're pretty much guaranteed to get your prior approval through and get on with it. Fantastic.
1: And do you say, just going back to the point on the planning, um, so if if you're looking at a project where you are aware right from the outset, yes, it ticks all the boxes, yes, shouldn't be any obstacles to getting um, you know, permitted development, but you know that you do need to change a few bits on externally, maybe put in some doorways, put in yes. some windows, whatever, Um you, what what's what, what should you be thinking then? Is it a case of you you you're able obviously to do the permitted development route and then you apply for planning once it's a residential building?
0: How does that work out? Okay, well there will be different schools of thoughts. Um, my my preference is is actually and, and bear in mind I'm not a planning consultant, but I like to to go actually get my permission to change. So I get my permission to change the residential. Mm-hmm. Once the, the local authorities granted me that. How can they turn around and say that I can't have windows providing that the architect sympathetically designed it yeah. how can they say I can't have windows to, to, to serve my residential building and and they've got a, they got a tough thing to, to you know to question that um, now there is a school of thought that actually no one should do it the other way around you should actually go in for your planning permission for your external elevational change because the council could turn you down on your prior notification on the basis that actually you can have residential units in here but they haven't got any windows mm. And so there's different schools of thought. Now, the, the the best advice I would say is talk to your local planning consultant who will know your local authority. Yeah. I've done it both ways, and I've been advised to do it both ways. And each time that I've taken the advice of my planning consultant, and it's always been, it's always been, you know, to yeah. be correct. So they tend to know, I mean, some planning consultants are ex-local authority, you know, planning advisors. Yeah. They tend to know people there. they tend to know how people think and how they react. So, you know, you, you can do it. One actually, there is a third. You run them in parallel. We've done that on a scheme. Mm-hmm. We actually put um, two submissions in. We put our prior notification in, uh, and this was actually was an industrial conversion, but a similar process. And we put a change of elevations in in exactly the same time. But the the change of note, the change of, of elevations was done on the basis as it being an industrial unit, and we want to put more windows in it, which yeah. they couldn't argue with. Yeah. And then we had separate residential. They went in parallel, just three options. But take take the advice of your planning consultant because they know what your local authority are, are likely to want to have. I don't think there's a right or wrong answer. Fantastic. Thank you. So let me talk about uh, timescale. And, and I think the thing I want to talk about here is that you've got a, a, a restricted time scale that the local authority has to respond to you. So in a normal planning submission, you know, it's normally 12 weeks that the planning authority has got to to consider your application, but in fact actually you know, they can take a lot longer. They can ask for further information. They can come back to you. They can delay it. They can ask for this. They can ask for that because they've got a massive amount of criteria they can assess you against. They shouldn't be subjective. They should really only be assessing you against um, planning policies and their local plans and so on. But, you know, they can be a bit subjective in it. And, um, you know, that can just draw the whole thing out. I mean, I know of someone who had a project which in all intents and purposes should have been fairly straightforward. It took a year to get planning. Fairly small scheme. Wow. It took them a year and it cost them £100,000 extra in terms of additional funding costs because they're holding the site, all the the reports, the consultants and everything. And no one expected that. And of course, that's straight off your bottom line. Of course it is, yeah. Now, going back to the permitted development rights under prior notification, the local authority has got 56 days, just 56 days to give you an answer. And at the end of those 56 days, if they don't respond, you've automatically got your approval. That's fantastic. The so slam you, dunk. Yeah, yeah. You know you can just carry on and get on with your development. So that's really useful. And of course, during that fifty-six days, they've only got half a dozen or so criteria, like we've talked about the flood risk and so on and so forth, that they can assess you against. And of course, you know you're not going to put a submission in under prior notification if you know you've got a flood risk problem without addressing yeah. it. You're going to address it with your planning design.
1: So you almost know, you know the answer to the question before you ask it.
0: Yeah. Because you know what they can assess you on. So by the time, if you've got a good planning consultant, you submit your prior notification, you know in 56 days' time you're going to be on-site building if that's what you want to be doing. And that's really good. And in terms of funders, funders will happily lend you money against a site like that. they lend you the purchase because you know you've effectively got planning permission. You don't yeah. have any piece of paper, but you've got these this permitted development rights, which actually gives you that right to go and build. Whereas if you go and ask funders to help you purchase a site where you want to maybe build five houses, but you've got no planning permission, you're going to struggle particularly if you get it it won't be a very effective rate so timescale wise this 56 days is really really important it's a great opportunity for developers to get on
1: so is there then other benefits aside from um, the timescale the 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 difference between the full planning if you were doing a new build and doing a conversion like this
0: uh, in, in terms of what are you thinking there? What in, in terms I guess of timescale d- or the design? I was thinking design-wise. Yeah, absolutely. Well, let's 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 talk about design. Um, there's there is great opportunity here in your flexible approach to getting more out of this development, more profit ultimately at the bottom line, and and this is this is where one of the things the government has encouraged people to do because a lot of people, a lot of developers wouldn't have gone in and converted offices under full planning permission. Because they wouldn't have made enough money out of it. So developers, uh, you know, we, we, are, we are commercial beasts. You know, we're not there as a charity. We have to make money. And that's why we do it. So if you have to comply with all national space standards, you, you're, you're going to then be restricted. And certainly those requirements extend into parking as well. So if you've got parking and, you know, typically, I don't know, one space per one bed flat, and you've got an office block that you could get 30 flats in, but it's only got 14 car parking spaces, you can't do it. It it can't work. You've got lots of planning hoops to jump through. So developers ordinarily wouldn't do it. Now, what uh, local authority uh, uh, we can do here uh, under this permitted development rights is actually not have to comply with space standards. So, you know, a typical one-bed flat national space standards is about 37 square meters. We can do whatever we want. We can, we can have a 20-square-metre thing in there. We can have a 30-square-metre. Now, normally, we stick at 30-square-metres. And, and the reason we stick at 30 is that's considered to be the, the lowest level that you'll get a mortgage. So most high street lenders out there, most main, main service mortgage providers won't give you a mortgage. So you, none of your buyers can get a mortgage for something under 30-square-metres. Yeah. Now, there are a few, but you're really limiting yourself. So you don't really want to go below 30 square meters. Now, that can change. So it's always worth keeping an eye on the market and and talking to your sales agent, because your sales agent will know, or talking to more mortgage brokers yourself. So if you think about it, if you uh, can actually have a a 30 square meter flat rather than a 37 square meter flat, you're going to get a lot more flats in. For sure. And if you don't have to comply with parking... You know, that's that's a massive difference. You've got to justify because I said did say the, the the local authority can assess you on transport and highways impact. Mm-hmm. But this is all about um, what amenities are there. I you know. Are you close to the town centre? Can people hop on a bus or a train? What's the demographics of the sort of people that you're looking at in here? So a lot of young people these days don't have cars, particularly in city centres. They don't bother with it. Um, you know, there are car sharing schemes and all those sort of things around. So uh, quite often people don't have cars and you can justify that you don't need it on those bases. Uh, and, or actually there is car parking in the local streets. Yes. Yeah. So from a design point of view, the key thing really is here, you don't have to comply with space standards. You've got quite a free rein, And inevitably that means you get more units in the in the building than you would have done otherwise. So really, really important. And I, and I touched on amenity you know amenity space has to be provided that's external space for people to live and and, and relax in you can get away with a lot of that in in terms of commercial conversions uh provided you can justify there's local amenity space round and about and that sort of thing so some great advantages in terms of design that you don't have to comply with the normal standards that local authority would better hold you to
1: fantastic and then I guess overall then, there's just there's this sense that the conversion route has a lot less risk than, than perhaps the traditional standard planning route.
0: Yeah, I, I think, you know, we, we can we can sum up in terms of certainty. You can purchase with certainty. If, if your planning consultant says to you, yes, this will come under permitted developments, you can go down the prior notification route. No, you don't have a, a flood problem. No, i think we can get around the transport and highways there's no issues there certainly no contamination problem noise assessment one obviously really important yes we, we we can do that we're not under article four it's not listed uh the the external elevational changes are minor so we're going to get those through you've got certainty mm. so you know that's that can be a, a quick half hour meeting with a planning consultant and you know you can go and buy it and you're able to convert it this is why it's so popular so i think that's the really important thing uh other terms of risk easier to get funding, you know, both private and commercial. You know, if you're going out there you're trying to raise private funding, you're trying to say to a private funder, "Yeah, lend me hundred thousand, will you?" I'm looking at this scheme. But when will it be finished? When will I get my money back? Oh, I don't know. One year, three years? Not sure. Depends when the planners let us. Yep. Not, not really interesting. The same conversation. Uh, you know, would you lend us hundred thousand to the scheme? I've got certainty. I've got permitted development rights. It'll be built out. It'll be sold in twelve months. You get your money back. i mean. Yeah, yeah and, and of course the same applies to the commercial funders. As we said, they're going to be much more interested to support you on the scheme that they know has got an end time scale. So for you as a developer, there's far, far, far less risk uh, on on the overall scheme in doing commercial conversion. Less risk in terms of time scale because you've got this fifty-six day submission. You know, you know after that you can get get straight yep,
1: on. All about certainty.
0: Yeah. So you know, it's a, it's you can see why it's popular. Um, you know, commercial yeah. conversion uh, could mean anything. But specifically, Office to Residential has permitted development rights. So that's been the focus of today is, you know, understand what those rights are. Speak to your planning consultant and see if you can find a scheme that you can do because you you really are narrowing down your risk. And, you know, you've got a great opportunity to make a a certain profit out of it.
1: Fantastic. Richie, thank you so much for that. Uh, Lots to uh, to, to think about there, really. Uh, And as you said, it is a really interesting strategy. Uh, I think some of the, the, the takeaways for me, uh, that th- thought about permitted development rights not being carte blanche, you know, you still have to go through a notification process. There are still these hurdles that you do have to clear, but you know what they are. They're yep, de- minor. Yeah. Yep. So the, the great thing there is that when you're evaluating a site, you can do it quite quickly. You don't have to be mucking around with a a big question mark over whether it's possible or not. You can actually find out quite quickly whether it ticks the boxes and move forward. Second thing, um, it was one of the last things you mentioned um, about space standards, because I think that you know th- th- there's a reason why they are there but but obviously what we're talking about here in not having to uh, to comply with space standards is that we're able to build uh, you know, apartments that people are absolutely going to want to buy they're going to be arguably less expensive than, they are they're the more larger affordable. Yeah. much more affordable um, they're not they're not pokey um, they you know 30 square meters as I said is mortgageable um, but being able to have that flexibility to to build out um, a project with units that are less than thirty seven meters less, and with the parking and all the rest of it, I think yeah there's a great deal
0: of uh, great deal more flexible. Um, I think a lot of people I mean a lot of developers get a bit of criticism that are saying, oh you know you're just providing small box box apartments, but if I go into some of our thirty square meter apartments that we've done, you know great as a starter home, mm-hmm. if I could afford that because that, it was far cheaper than anything else around. Great, I get out, I get on the ladder, and I'm started. This is yeah. what these homes are for. And you can come to fit a couple of young professionals in there. They've got their own pad. It's you know, They can go and buy something like that. It's often better than renting. So it really yeah. does put affordable homes in the market.
1: And I think the um, the final thing I mentioned is that, um, that yeah, it's that de-risking part. Because risk, risk plays a part in property development. Of course it does. Uh, and the more that you can do... Uh, to de-risk something the better and we know that from all of the you know the analysis that we do at the front end to be able to kind of de-risk things and 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 get ourselves in a position to make uh create certainty in our projects but actually here that you know one of those massive variables of what were the planners think what are they going to do how are they are going to react Yeah, you know, we're taking that off the table altogether. Yeah. so I think that's an absolute uh, yeah it's a really big win with uh, with the conversion process under permitted development Richie thank you so much for that uh, really really interesting unfortunately all we've got time for in this episode so please do join us again next time when we'll be giving you the inside track on another part of the property world in the meantime, uh, feel free to check out our other episodes. And, of course, you can visit our website, which is at propertyceo.co.uk. But until next time, it's goodbye from your
0: both. Goodbye.